on my mind, anyway, yeah. what people are talking to me about, um, you know, is the incredible discomfort at what to do about Diane Feinstein. Oh, yeah. Now we know she didn't let the world know that she had encephalitis yeah. along along with shingles and 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 the the little snippets of interviews that have come out with her are alarming appalling upsetting and well, no she one... said she didn't even she she denied to the reporters that she'd even been gone unbelievable but yeah. but but de- democrats i know anyway people are saying you know who's got the power here what can people do you know where is schumer where's her family they 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 don't know what to do about this thing it's also it's so tragic we all should hope not to end in that way, right? right. It's just, it's such a, Diane Feinstein was such an incredible trailblazer, had such an amazing career, and this is this is sort of how it ends. It's She's really, done amazing things. And this is, this is the problem is this kind of thing may over, overshadow it. And, it and, the, and the argument is always, oh, well, in the past they didn't make the, the men retire when they were Remember e- you know, equally Thurmond? diminished. <laughs> yeah. He I mean, was like wandering around Capitol Hill, literally pinching women's bottoms until he couldn't even stand up. I've always heard he was, a, it was a hazard to get into no, an elevator no, no, no. with that I, man. I, I honestly, yeah. I actually did experience that as a young reporter on Capitol Hill. Every cocktail reception that was possible, he would go, he would wander around, he would literally, you'd feel some sharp thing and you'd look around, <laughs> it was like some old dude. Like, <laughs> I'm serious. Oh, God. Well, By the way, you know, what, what do you even get? Like, what is the point of pinching someone in the I think it's for, I mean, speaking I, as what a male. The hell, yeah, I have to <laughs> yeah, say, what on, the, how am I supposed to answer that question? <laughs> Welcome to The Political Scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Jane Mayer, and I'm joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Susan Glasser. Hi, Evan. Hi, Susan. Hey there. Great to be with you guys. Nice to see you both. Over the last few years, it's gotten to be something of an obsession in Washington to just casually speculate about a military conflict with China. It comes up in our reporting and in so many casual conversations, dinner parties, back rooms. People are talking about it as if, you know, war is almost inevitable. My guess is we'll hear even more about that threat of a confrontation with China after this week's G7 summit. World leaders are set to spend a lot of time discussing their worries about China's rising influence in the world. This has got us all wondering about the U.S.-China relationship. How did it get so bad so fast? And what will it take to make rebuilding this relationship a priority in Washington? Hey, Evan, Biden's Indo-Pacific trip got cut short. What does that say about U.S. foreign policy um, and U.S.-China relations? Yeah, this is an interesting case. He was supposed to go first to the G7 summit in Hiroshima, and then he would become, and this was supposed to be a big milestone moment, he would be the first American president to go to the island nation of Papua New Guinea. It was going to be a short stopover, just a few hours, and then he'd move on to Australia. But it was symbolically important because I've been to Papua New Guinea, in fact, to write about China's influence there. It's very visible. Their sort of economic impact is just everywhere. And this was going to be a sign of how the United States is recommitting itself to the Asia-Pacific 
And then because of the debt ceiling drama in Washington, because he felt like he couldn't be, in a sense, uh, sitting in the middle of the jungle while the American economy is is teetering on the edge of Republican sabotage, he said, we got to cut short the trip. So they cut out the uh, the Papua New Guinea part. Now, this is a big embarrassment in some ways because Papua New Guinea was already – they'd made it a national holiday. They were sort of getting all geared up for this. There was going to be a summit there and then he was going to go on to Australia. I, I will say that the, you know, the, the White House is saying, look, we're not canceling this idea. He's still going to go. We're postponing it because, after all, we can't postpone the debt limit deadline. But the takeaway for the moment is quite clear, which is this is another moment, a big moment, in which America's domestic political psychodrama, a completely self-created crisis, has in a sense, telegraph to the rest of the world that we don't have the capacity and the attention to deal with something as big and looming as the growing challenge from China. He not only canceled that trip to Papua New Guinea, but by canceling the trip to Australia, it was perceived as a major snub to Australia's prime minister. And he then decided that he had to cancel the upcoming summit of the Quad, quote unquote, this very important diplomatic grouping that includes Australia, India, uh, the United States. And the idea there really has been that this would be the main regional uh, kind of forum for challenging China in the Indo-Pacific. And yet here they can't even have a meeting. So you can say that that's the first casualty of this kind of crazy self-imposed debt limit fight. And right now, the United States is in the midst of some complicated diplomacy saying we need to do more to cut off exports to Russia. Well, the remaining exports to Russia are primarily from Europe and a little bit from Japan. And so, you know, again, I look at this as a question of American leadership. And at the moment, I just got back from 10 days in Europe. Everywhere I went, what did people say? They said, how long? You know, Joe Biden says that America's back. But how long? Is Donald Trump coming back? Is Donald Trump coming back? That's literally from the, you know, from the cab drivers to senior European diplomats. That's the, the question they wanted to have. And it goes to the ability of Joe Biden or any American president to lead in this context. And so from that point of view, having an international summit of any kind in the midst of this debt limit fight is extremely damaging. Well, how much, Evan, how much of the this the the focus on China and the backstory here really does uh, trace back to Trump? I think, Jane, you have to actually go back further. I mean, we are living through this enormous transformation in a basic tenet of American foreign policy, which is, you know, going all the way back to 1972 when Richard Nixon went to China, this idea that that would be a core concept of the 21st century, that you'd have these two countries in a kind of probably tense but productive collaboration. And that has just been failing for the last, I'd say, you you have to go back now about at least 15 years. I mean, uh, interestingly, remember, the China got into the WTO, the World Trade Organization, with the support from the United States. And after a couple of years of being in the WTO, in the business community, they began to sense that actually things weren't going the way they thought and that instead of getting more market access, that things were beginning to close down. And then you had other things happen, like the financial crisis in the United States, which the Chinese took as a sign that they couldn't rely on the United States, that it was no longer a, a sort of global arbiter that they could take as a source of stability. Then you 
you had the Arab Spring, which made them say, hold on, Western technology is also threatening to uh, dictatorships like ours, and we don't really want to have that either. And so you had this, this steady closing down at the same time that they're beginning to ramp up their own ambitions in the world. And you saw them going out and building islands in the South China Sea and sort of expanding their territorial claims. All of this has produced this net transformation on the American consensus about China. And I'll add one other piece that you don't often hear that much about, but matters, which is that throughout this whole period, China, of course, was hacking into American institutions. You know, it was sometimes they were big companies. And in a key case, they hacked into the Office of Personnel Management in about 2014, 2015, meaning that they got access to a huge number of files on Americans who work in government or want to work in government. All of a sudden, this abstract question of hacking became very personal for a lot of people. And I mention that not to say that was a dispositive fact, but it was a sign of how this accumulating set of grievances and concerns on the American side um, was responding to these more aggressive and overreaching steps by the Chinese that led us to where we are now. Well, I mean, and I, th- I think it's very important, though, to also look at, you know, Donald Trump and the Republicans. They want to be sort of, we're the original hawks. We're the ones who, you know, talked about getting chuff on China. But Evans, right, the key period of time is actually the Obama administration. And you you had a remarkable shift over the course of that financial crisis. It wasn't just China that was changing its views about the United States, but it was the United States changing its views about China, especially here in Washington, where you had a theory of the case when Barack Obama came in. You had his advisors who talked about things like China being a responsible stakeholder in the world, talking about, okay, well, we see these problematic moves by China, but we're going to have, quote unquote, strategic patience. Well, what is strategic patience? That's a very, you know, fancy diplomatic way of saying, well, we're going to do nothing and hope it works out okay. But they soon <laughs> they soon came to realize that that wasn't going to work. And actually, it's interesting because it was back then, uh, Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State for Barack Obama. And one day out of the blue, I got a phone call Uh, when I was the editor of Foreign Policy magazine from a a senior official at the State Department, still very involved in China policy uh, today, the senior official in, in the White House dealing with China policy, Kurt Campbell. And he said, Okay, I don't know you, but I have a gift for you today. Uh, this is a true story. And I said, okay, great. Well, I'd like to know you and I'd like to, you know, what is this gift? And he said, we have this big piece that I would like you to publish from Hillary Clinton. And mm. it's about how we're going to make a very significant change in our foreign policy and we're going to call it the pivot to ah, Asia. Mm, and I pivot. said, oh, well, that's great. You know, I, in my experience, it's actually very challenging to work on uh, and to publish pieces from senior officials like Hillary Clinton because they always want to edit it and take out all the good stuff. So I said, listen, I'm happy to work with you guys, but only if you can guarantee me that we keep the term pivot to Asia hmm. in this I article. Lo- I love that. I mean, can we just have one moment of appreciation for Susan here? Okay. She's being offered like this gorgeous present on a silver platter and she's so tough she says yeah maybe I'll take it but I gotta have control that, well oh, listen Susan class no 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 I knew so I knew. did you and, keep it in did the oh my stay? goodness and by the way it was a big fight and in fact oh wow I, but I have to say first of all Kurt Campbell was true to his word and uh he was good to work with and trust me there was a lot of editing in all the rest of it and Secretary Clinton herself was very involved in line editing that piece in ways that, you know, a, a journalist, uh, you know, is always wants to have the, you know, the edgiest possible presentation. That is not what diplomats want. But they were true to their word. We kept it in. 
there was a huge, I mean, this was like a kind of explosion uh, in terms of the world of foreign policy. Europeans, interestingly, were furious about it. Uh, they were very offended. The diplomats of the Obama administration spent months and months, you know, reassuring their European partners, no, it doesn't mean we're pivoting away from you and giving up on you. Uh, and, you know, it was really, it was kind of a big moment. Well, but what really was I'm, I, what really was the provocation? I mean, what had China become so much more aggressive by then and 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 moved from being just an economic rival to a security threat in some measurable way? Uh, well, there was I mean, for one thing, Xi Jinping stood in the rose garden with Barack Obama and pledged to make a series of steps that would reassure the two sides. Things like no more militarizing of islands in the South China Sea, no more hacking. And then they just proceeded to continue doing it. So that was kind of a, a moment where they said, hold on, hold on. We gave you the best possible reception we can in Washington and you're still going to keep doing this. But also there was a weariness with the Middle East. This is the key thing. You have to put yourself back into that mindset at the time. Barack Obama was, as he described himself, the first Pacific American president, you know, after all, raised in Hawaii. He wanted to sort of remind Americans that we are a Pacific nation. And he didn't really want to have us bogged down in the Middle East for another generation of war. And by the way, the pivot to Asia version one, and we're now on version three, arguably, but version one was not anticipating per se a explicitly militarized conflict with China. But it was a sense that this is the United States' long-term challenge in the 21st century is competition with and China as an opportunity. So really, it was about economic growth. Remember, that was still the free trade era. When Barack Obama wanted to pivot to Asia, we were still talking about having a massive Trans-Pacific Partnership free trade pact. Uh, one of the first things that Donald Trump did, even though that was to counter China, was to get rid of the TPP. And now, in this day and age, when many people think that a uh, free trade alliance among the democracies uh, in Asia would be the smartest way to counter China's influence in the Biden administration. You don't even have any talk of that because America has changed in this intervening period of time. I mean, even the way Trump spoke of China, just the way he pronounced China, um, <laughs> it was so so clear that he was, you know, d- just uh, dismissing and dissing the, the, the whole thing and trying to um, show nothing but contempt and 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 basically demagoguing the issue. I think. I mean, I just before we move on, I just have a question for both of you, which is when you talk about China hacking us, which it has done very aggressively. Um, it, it it reminds me also of this the recent balloon situation, these sort of incursions into sort of sovereign U.S. space, and I I just wonder, um, do we not do the same thing to them in both of these? Can I answer a slightly different question, okay. actually? sure. Can we, I mean, I, I want to go back. That's, that's a Washington rule of the political scene. Uh, whenever appearing on uh, any media, always answer the question you want to answer <laughs> and, then, and the, not the question is, you're asked. Yeah. No, the, be- the most useful thing you can always say to, at a sort of Washington dinner party, if you're trying to just, you know, sound clever, is you say, I'm not sure we're asking the right questions here. And then <laughs> oh, very sage, very sage. So I think, <laughs> um, I, I, I think we have to touch on one feature of the Trump okay. era that sometimes okay. Sometimes gets lost in this, which is Trump actually came into office with this kind of fantasy that he was going to romance the Chinese into submission or cooperation. I mean, remember, he had Xi Jinping come to Mar-a-Lago and he had his own grandchildren sing in Chinese for Xi Jinping and his wife. I mean, it was about as kind of overt of an effort. And, you know, then they had – you'll remember he talked about eating this – 
big, beautiful piece of chocolate cake. We're now having dessert. And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. And President Xi was enjoying it. I mean, it was all And classic. by the way, I was told in the reporting for The Divider that that was not true. No chocolate that cake? It, no, there was chocolate cake, and I was described <laughs> to me as very dry and not very good. I'm, I'm so surprised he I, lied about I, the I, quality we of the dessert. We now have news in <laughs> this know, I mean, I, but, so I, I, but I think what you had was he started off with this effort to try to sort of romance them, and the Chinese figured this out right away. And they said, this is a guy who is almost uniquely susceptible to flattery. I remember reading this one interesting kind of analysis that was done by a Chinese think tank where they said, it's evident to us by now that – Donald Trump regards the American government and statecraft as a kind of extension of his family business. And in that way, they could throw a brass band at him and take him on a tour of the Forbidden City, and he would come back thinking that that the future was rosy. And meanwhile, there was this second thing going on, which is that all of the officials who were working in his administration at a certain level, sort of mid to senior level DOD and NSC officials, were actually embarking on this very confrontational approach. And so the net effect was they looked at us and said, huh, the United States can't seem to figure out what it wants. This is our moment. They started saying in Chinese, this is a period of strategic opportunity, meaning that the Trump administration is so disorganized that we have a chance, as they say in Chinese, we have a, we are seeing changes unseen in a century in the world, and we're going to go. And that go time, that moment where they plunged ahead, ended up being uh, really uh, going too far too fast. And we're dealing with all the antibodies. Okay, well, but I, I'm just going to be uh, play the other side of the game when you change the question, which is to play the reporter and just say one more time, <laughs> just because I, do we hack them and do we have surveillance balloons or other forms of, you know, of, of sort of invasive intelligence gathering? We have a lot of intelligence gathering in China. It's not the same. We don't use the same platforms, as they say, in the intelligence community. But I think Evan's sort of recounting of the Trump years is very important because, first of all, that was Donald Trump's approach to a lot of the world. And it's very uh, much an echo of his admiration for the strategic genius of Vladimir Putin. At the same time, his aides were pursuing, at times, a very hawkish policy uh, uh, North, sending the North first Korea as well the love letters do, well that's exactly forth, right that's you know. that's sort of Donald Trump's playbook and and notably even in that CNN town hall just the other day he was once again praising his great relationship with Xi Jinping as if this is a selling point uh, at a time when when the country has arguably moved very much in the opposite direction but so then you have Joe Biden comes to office and the backdrop of this and they are very explicit from day one, the Biden administration. Uh, Tony Blinken, his secretary of state, uh, I believe in his first sort of statements, he said, we want to be clear, China is the greatest strategic challenge for the United States in the 21st century, and that is the core of our foreign policy. And yet they understood that China had taken a conclusion from the sort of chaos and troubles of the Trump years, which was that America was a superpower in in decline, not only decline, but possibly terminal decline. And you have this almost iconic moment that tells you a lot about how badly things are going to go at the very beginning of the Biden administration, uh, Blinken, the Secretary of State, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, they fly to Alaska to meet senior Chinese officials. And let's just say, not only does it not go well, uh, it goes 
terribly. It was chilly <laughs> in every conceivable way. <laughs> but I'm bum. I think does that count as an official dad joke? I think it? so. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't own know. that. I own that. I don't know. You should own that. Um, <laughs> but you know, basically, the Chinese uh, practically uh, turn up their noses at these uh, U.S. officials and. The conclusion is very clear. They, they, we're not going to take you seriously. We do not offer high-level conversations. We do not have anything really to say to you. And I think that really was the template that was set from the very beginning of this Biden relationship with China. And interestingly, even now you have Biden in Asia at the G7 summit and Yet Biden has all these other problems. So his pivot to Asia once again is challenged by the war in Europe between Russia and Ukraine. It is challenged by America's increasing internal dysfunction, not just the debt limit crisis, but the sense that our own political system is unraveling. And so our ability to lead at the moment when there's much more clarity about the threat and challenge posed by China is undermined again. Political scene will be back in just a moment. The pivot to Asia has, seems reminiscent of um, Infrastructure Week. It just keeps being put off and put off as they try to do it and are distracted by more sort of urgent front burner issues that get in their way. I mean, I you you bring up the the, the communications um, problems between the senior levels of U.S. government and China, and that seems to me very concerning. Also, we've we've heard that um, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, has had a very hard time um, engaging his counterparts directly um, in China. I think it's got gotten better recently, but there have been gaps, right, for months at a time. Well, and, and you know, historically, it's, it's, I think I'm glad you raised that, Jane, because historically, the U.S. and China at the level of military have already struggled compared with, at least with Russia, there were actually very robust, uh, very senior level discussions. And in my reporting, I was always told that uh, there was always a bigger problem with the U.S. Uh, national security leadership being able to foster regular routine uh, and and even just basic deconfliction uh, connections with their Chinese counterparts, whereas at least they had the lines of communication with Russia in this this post-Soviet era. And so I think it's very scary. You know, one of the things that was really revealing this year was that you had this period of a kind of deep freeze, exactly as Susan was describing, where you had almost no contact. And that was kind of alarming because we have all these planes and ships that are getting in closer and closer proximity with one another in the in the uh, in in the South China Sea and elsewhere. And then you had this balloon that, of course, as everybody remembers, came into American airspace. We shot it down and that shut down communications for a long time. Tony Blinken was supposed to go over. He canceled his trip. But what was even more revealing about it was what it told us about a shift in American attitudes. There was a Pew poll that was done not too long after that that showed this kind of astonishing number uh, that the negatives on China were at an all-time high now, 83 percent among Americans. But interestingly, the share of Americans who see China as an enemy, not just as a competitor or uh, something more benign, has increased over the past year by 13 points. To what is it now? Yeah, it's now 44 percent Americans who believe that China is an enemy. That is a reflection of the sort of cumulative effect of our political tone and conversation around this issue. I bet you if you took that poll inside Washington – 
it would be twice that level. I mean, and that's the thing that I yeah. think is interesting to try to, you know, explain to people is that there's a certain amount of kind of um, a drumbeat, kind of a, a warlike feeling within Washington about this. And and one of the things that's striking about it, and I'd be curious to hear from you guys, but it it it, stri- it seems that it's bipartisan. Um, which is unusual at this time when people are so divided um, by party. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, you know, point out that China started out at a much higher baseline of approval among Americans generally. So that number is like 20 points uh, or more That's below right. the yeah. number of Americans who perceive Russia to be an enemy. But, of course, we're dealing with a hot war situation, an imperial war of aggression against Russia's neighbor And amazingly, the numbers of Americans who think of Russia as an enemy is actually going down over the last year, while well, in China and, it's going up. And this reflects, I think, you know, what's happening in the Republican Party right, uh, right now. And you have a situation where some Republicans are deciding that the conflict with China is everything and let's just forget about uh, Russia, leave it to the Europeans. And, you know, I find this to be a sort of a fascinating aspect of this, that, you know, the the Republicans have turned into almost united China hawks while being very split over uh, Russia. And you have the sort of Donald Trump and the rest of the kind of pro-Putin uh, minority in the Republican Party uh, increasingly joined by others who say, well, let's just forget about, you know, that whole uh, deadliest war in Europe since the end of World War II and focus on China. I would suggest it seems possible that it's it it's also related to the culture wars that are dominating the um, the right at this point. And you've got in Russia uh, a, a very reactionary um, sort of Christian nationalist attitude in Putin. And in China, you've got no religious freedom for Christians and um, n- none of the sort of resonant culture war issues that the right cares about here. And and I think maybe they're seeing sort of an extension of that there. So I want to hear from Evan on this one. Y- you've looked a lot more at this question of why Republicans are the uber hawks on China. And, you know, can you explain to us why they care more about China than Russia? Some of them? And, and what does Taiwan mean to to them and to to this country at this point. You know, the irony is if you go back to the early moments of the Trump administration, even before the inauguration, there was this clear indication on the part of Donald Trump himself that he seemed to be perfectly prepared to, in effect, almost trade away Taiwan, that it was just sort of not an issue that he particularly had a robust understanding of. And and yet now you have him, you know, here we are again, the Republican frontrunner in the 2024 presidential campaign. Um, and... I think that, look, Taiwan in some ways has been pulled into the American political conversation because people see it as an extension of the Ukraine dynamic. They say, well, hold on, if Russia can go into Ukraine, does that mean that China can go into Taiwan? I think you have to look at some of the effects of the Ukraine quagmire. There is an emerging school of evidence that says that, in fact, China has looked at what happened and said, huh. If it went as badly for Russia and Ukraine as it has, that might tell us that this would not be a cakewalk for us in Taiwan. And I think one of the big surprises, and this gets to the sort of key distinction between the Biden administration's approach to China and the Trump administration's, is that, of course, Biden's administration has assembled this international coalition and has been able to sort of sustain this this alliance of resistance against Russia's war. 
And that is not something China expected to happen in Ukraine. They thought that the, that NATO was, in effect, defunct and that that was a sign that they were going to be able, if they moved on Taiwan, that they would be able to kind of peel off these individual actors. You maybe get the French to to get wobbly on this. You get you pull off the Germans. But actually what they're finding is that that might be a harder enterprise. So Taiwan has become this kind of, you know, pawn in this really elaborate um, great game between these big powers. And I think the thing that we have to keep paramount in our mind is the people who matter most in this question are the Taiwanese people. I mean, this is an island of almost 30 million people whose fate hinges very much on how sophisticated and deep the conversation is in Washington, not how shallow and instinctive it is. Well, if their fate <laughs> depends on a sophisticated conversation and nuance in Washington, they, they might in be in trouble. trouble. But <laughs> look, you know, I do think— And Beijing, I would say. It's yeah, not just Washington. Of course. Yeah. And and actually, Evan, your point is so—is really timely, too, about the interconnection between what's happening in the war in Ukraine and, you know, will the Western support for Ukraine hold firm? What message does it send to China? That was exactly what this G7 summit meeting was supposed to be all about that Biden is at right now in Japan. To that end, it's very notable and interesting that it was just announced that Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky will be flying to the summit along with French President Emmanuel Macron. And the message is not just to Russia, but the message is also to China about the unity of these big powers. And Susan, how coming out of the G7, how does the Biden administration really define success? What would it be that 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 Biden's seeking from it? You know, it's a good question uh, because oftentimes these summits are are measured in uh, tiny, tiny increments of of change, and it's about the the overall. People uh, will parse things like communiques, uh, but in the end, uh, there's no transformative. Uh, declaration that we're expecting out of this G7 summit. I think what you're looking for is, uh, is there going to be news in terms of new uh, uh, weapons and military systems that are going to be given to Ukraine? Right now, the big news is around export of F-16s to Ukraine, which has been uh, something the U.S. administration has resisted. It appears now that what's happening is that Europeans are agreeing to uh, provide the F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. The United States is not going to do so, but they're not going to object to the export of them. And it looks like the training, perhaps, of Ukrainian pilots, uh, a test run has already happened here in the United States. That's that's a big development, uh, potentially, in the conflict. And it shows, once again, this sort of incremental approach, but then overall ends up with this huge amount of weapons to Ukraine. But is it soon enough uh, to really is it fast enough, I should say, to affect the fight? Uh, on this exports to Russia, it's not clear uh, that they're going to get the agreement to uh, move much more harshly to isolate Russia in the world. Uh, I think what you're going to also hear some very strong language from the G7 about China aimed at China and its, quote-unquote, no-limits partnership to Russia, because one of the great concerns is that if Russia continues to get in more and more trouble on the battlefield in Ukraine, that they're going to increase the pressure on China to supply weapons and military assistance in the conflict. The U.S. has sort of marked that out as a red line with China. And I think that's one almost uh, pressing question that we're going to see is, can they uh, convince China that that would be a dangerous escalation to provide outright military assistance to Russia? So, Evan, Meanwhile, back in Washington, is there, um, do you think, a sort of a growing 
um, hostility towards China? Are you seeing any kind of backlash to this? I mean, yeah, this is an interesting development, actually. I mean, you'll remember, guys, we had this conversation maybe about six months ago about this emerging um, new consensus, a sort of hawkish assumption about China. And since then, some important things have happened. You've, you've begun to hear something of a reaction to that, of people saying, wait a second. There was a Susan Shirk, who was a, in the Clinton administration, who's a China scholar, has described it as the fatalistic gloom around the assumption that we're going to war with China. I and, mean, you know, in a way, there is this recognition on the part of the Biden administration that uh, we were kind of ambling into a cold war, if not a hot war. And that is, for obvious reasons, supremely risky. There was a key indicator not too long ago, a Chinese scholar named Wang Jisi, who was here sort of making the rounds in the United States and told a lot of people that, as he said in a speech publicly, that the Chinese leadership had, in effect, given up on the idea of cooperating with the United States, which is a profound break. And in in some ways, it was almost like that also signaled an opportunity to say, okay, things have gotten so frozen that we now have a chance. And you saw Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, go to Vienna last week and have this meeting with his Chinese counterpart, Wang Yi. It was not advertised. They didn't sort of you know, raise the stakes and say it all hangs on this. But then they ended up sitting together for something like eight to 12 hours of meetings over the course of a couple of days, and which is really unusual. I mean, this is a long, sustained contact. And we're going to have to see over the long term what came out of it. But the early signs are that it indicates that the Chinese side, at least, and David Ignatius in The Washington Post had a very good column on this effect, that it seems that they are questioning a couple of their core beliefs. One, that the Ukraine war dragging on and on is basically good for China because it keeps the U.S. tied up and so on and so on. They actually may be beginning to revise that. And then the other big one, and I, I return to this idea a lot when I think and, and write on China, is that they may be beginning to question this key point, which Susan mentioned earlier, this assumption that the United States was in terminal decline. Because if we're not in terminal decline, that changes a whole lot of their strategy. They have to deal with us. You know, I have to say, you're, we're triggering all my uh, I'm the pessimist <laughs> at the table buttons. And so – you know, I, I I would say a couple of things. Like, one, I think it was really notable uh, to have that conversation, and very unusual to have that conversation in Vienna uh, between Jake Sullivan and the Chinese at that senior level. But an airing out of view over two days, uh, it may have simply provided more in, in the realm of clarity rather than in the form of a strategic shift. In my experience, uh, we are looking at a long-term kind of macro shift in, in, in the geopolitical environment. And this recognition that we've moved, you know, we, the immediate post-Cold War era is over. And a new age of, you know, essentially geostrategic competition between great powers uh, has arisen with China and Russia having pretty clearly chosen a course of partnership, if not uh, outright uh, alliance in, in what they do strategically and aimed very specifically at countering what they call American hegemony. It's very hard to imagine. I mean, you know, a country's foreign policy, its its geostrategic view of the world is is like the ultimate battleship. It is not easy to turn around. I think China has chosen this course. Russia has clearly chosen a course of confrontation. 
Well, to be continued on this subject, I have a feeling it's not going away anytime soon. But I feel really lucky to be joined by two people who are so expert in this area. So um, thanks so much for the incredible conversation. Thanks, Jane. That was great. Thank you so much. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Jane Mayer. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Catherine Winter. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music's by Allison Layton Brown. We're taking a break next Friday, but we'll see you back in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening. Listening.